0: Welcome to the Ring-A-Ding...
1: <laughs> Shit. I know, it's, it's just hard, I'm sorry. It, it is. is. Here we go.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the Ring-A-Ding-Ding Podcast. My name is Jason Isbell.
1: And my name is Carl Garrison.
0: The Ring-A-Ding-Ding Podcast is a conversation between two friends about race, faith, culture, politics, parenting, and whatever the heck else we want to talk about. Carl, man, I'm super proud of us. It's only been one week since our last episode. I think we're getting the hang of this podcast thing.
1: Yeah, I think we're just getting out of the house because our wives said go.
0: <laughs> and if you've liked the first two episodes so far, give us a like and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out into other people's ears. Today, we're continuing from our conversation last week and looking at chapter five from Robin D'Angelo's book. Called nice Racism. We thought it was important to come back to this even though we spent an hour on it last week because number one, the conversations we need to have on race could go on for weeks and months, if not years and decades. But number two, Robin DiAngelo's book, especially in this chapter five, which is titled The Moves of White Progressives, is, is a good way to analyze some of the experiences that people of color have, and also the ways white people put up boundaries to shield themselves from the accusation of needing to examine their own racial ideas, racial stereotypes, or their own racism. Another way, I, and the title for this episode that I titled it, another way to retitle um, Robin DiAngelo's chapter from the moves of white progressives uh, is to say, But my friend is black.
1: Or I could say, but my friend is white, and justify it as well on the other side. But we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. So (laughs) let's step
0: back for a second, and um, I think in this the third episode of the Ring a Ding Ding podcast, and we've been talking about race, and um, we've been using the word racism and progressive. A lot i think it would be good to, for us to reset the table and define racism what carl okay. and i are talking about when we say racism
1: well racism i, I love beverly tatum she, she's the author of why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and she defines racism this way and i really really applaud it racism is a system of, of advantage based on race now this definition of racism is useful because it allows us to see that racism like other forms of oppression is not only a personal ideology based on racial prejudice, but a system involving cultural messages and institutional policies and practices, as well as beliefs and actions of individuals. And she goes on to write, Hateful behavior is hateful behavior, no matter who does it. When I'm asked, can people of color be racist? Mm, The answer depends on your definition of racism. If one defines racism as racial prejudice, then the answer is yes. People of color can and do have racial prejudices. However, if one defines racism as a system of advantage based on race, the answer is no. Using the same logic, I reserve the word sexist for men. Though women can and do have gender-based prejudices, only men systemically benefit from sexism another way to say this to help with the distinction between racism and prejudice is racism is prejudice with power. And by the way, uh, she kind of, she sort of parrots some of the things Ibram X. Kendi says about how to define racism and power as well. So, or I get, or you can, one can say that he got this def, his definition from his books and his work from her.
0: I only interacted with this definition of racism in about 2015. So wow. it's not like it's been something that's been part of my vocabulary. I learned the definition of racism as a system of advantage based on race in my second year of seminary, getting my master's degree, and it's because of this book. So. Wow.
1: Welcome to the party.
0: Well, I I was in my 40s, Carl. I was in my 40s before just even having my notion of racism challenged, just how I define that. So Mm -hmm. this definition of racism, whenever Carl and I are talking about racism is the one that we go with. A systematic advantage based on race. Yes, people of color can be prejudiced. They can hold prejudiced views of other people, but they can't be racist. Racism is prejudice with power.
1: And having that power codified by law, and that's sort of, uh, you know, that's really crucial. I mean, you know, and one way that has helped me to look at white supremacy and how it affects not only people of color, but but white people as well, is in my own sexism, you know? um, To this day, we're 2021, Women make less than uh, than men on the dollar, but you know something, nobody gives a rest behind anymore. Mm-hmm. It's so normative, you know. About and also what, what yeah, the black women make less than white women as well. So we're we gonna, you know, it's a whole another not- thing there. But but you know, but that that's codified by law, right? I mean, you know, it, uh, so you know, we uh, that's a whole another discussion. Hopefully, but we'll have but one.
0: you're right. I mean, and and Tatum is smart to say, uh, you know, it's the same as sexism. You know, men are sexist. Women have gender based prejudices. Women, because men control the levers of power. And their sexism can keep women from achieving levels of success in, in business, in religion, in um, social environments. Well, it's
1: very important to note also, just briefly, that with every sort of uh, cultural advancement with race and, and with uh, gender, who pull the levels of power. It wasn't like we say, look at Jackie Robinson, he is so good he should be in the majors. You know, white men decided he should be in the majors. Look at women's suffrage. You know, Robin D'Angelo says, outside of a bloody revolution men said, okay, we should uh, grant women the right to vote. I mean, it wasn't women, you know, so that gives you an, an idea of how that power is codified through law and it's usually at the hands of white men.
0: Let, let me know what you think about this. I, I, when I think of the, uh, the, the content that um, Robin D'Angelo is putting out, and that we're discussing, I tend to think of progressivism as an idea based on the progress of advancement in things like science, technology, economic development, social organization, the things that improve the human condition. And it's part of that, you know, the movement of the Enlightenment in the you know, 1800s that we are advancing to somewhere better tomorrow than where we are today. And I don't care if you vote for a Republican or a Democrat, everybody, uh, everybody has that sense. We, we are in a technological age in which we believe that tomorrow is gonna be more advanced and therefore better than today. And so when Robin DiAngelo uses the word progressive I'm embracing that terminology and that idea that, in some way or another, even if you're really conservative, even if you've never voted for a Democrat before in your entire life, and you would be loathed to even call yourself a progressive, she is talking to you.
1: Hmm. I'm not, I, I'm, I see the point there. I'm not. I don't. Don't know if I fully agree. I think. Um, I think there is a perception of what a progressive is, so therefore, it's a carton. People accept the caricature of progressive, so then they react against that. And I think um, so when they hear her, I think progressives say, "Oh, you know." Then it becomes a litmus test of how progressive are you. So when you have all those those kind of definitions, then it kind of, to me, dilutes the mix, if you will. Um, Ooh,
0: that's fair. That's a that's a fair critique. That's fair enough. Yeah, for sure. So. Today, as we said, we're took, looking at chapter five. and chapter five, the title is um,
1: her best chapter, by the way. I think I I've, I said first it was three, then it was four. I mean, I, the whole book is great. The book is very informative, but I think the, this chapter, the moves of white progressive, it's so informative for me as a black person. I have to say that because I guess sometimes when you read books absolutely. like this, like Tim Wise, and you read these pe- books by white um, white anti-racist thinkers one thinks oh this is nothing for black people but I, I tend to disagree this is uh, this is totally for me as well you know why because I said so because I made it for me you know I, I chose mm-hmm. to sort of uh, you know redefine the, the the lens in which I look at it and learn so anyway I, because I, I part of her criticism is people who criticize her have said oh this is centering whiteness and, and maybe she is maybe she isn't um, but for me, I'm learning as well. I mean, things I I have no, but I just it's important for me to respan to to rehash and expand some of my knowledge base.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in this uh, again, in this chapter, we're gonna first deal with what she means, because I'm sure some people are listening to this like, what do you mean the moves by white progressives? <laughs> and, and dance moves? What do you mean? Dance what, moves, what you Doing yeah. a robot? What are you doing? <laughs> doing a
1: bump? What do you mean moves? Moves on the court? Crossover? Come on, man.
0: Well, one of the things, and this is a new concept for me. Again, I want to, want to reidi- reiterate that this is one of the most challenging and difficult books I've read on race. Because and I have to can,
1: ask you why, Jason. Why? I told
0: why? you. I told well, I you hear, last I wanna
1: week. Hear, I want to hear, hear it again. I want to hear it again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> this is, this is yeah, my revenge. No. Because
0: <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because she is asking me to look at me. I like books about race that are about other people who are racist or, and those other people could be people in history. It could be people yeah. in a different political party. It could be right. people in, um, uh, 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 who are really wealthy and live, da, 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 you know, all of those things. Right. And she keeps bringing it back to me. Okay. So
1: that's fair. That's fair.
0: So credentialing. This is one of the big ideas about the moves white progressives make. And it's called credentialing. So we'll listen to this clip. It's about two minutes long, and then we'll come back to discuss it.
2: Credentialing is a term I use to describe the ways in which white progressives attempt to prove that they are not racist. Credentialing surfaces whenever race enters the conversation and white people feel the need to establish their goodness. It functions as a kind of certificate of completion that preempts any further discussion, akin to going to a professional's office and seeing degrees and awards posted on the wall to assure you that you are in good hands. Prompts for credentialing can range from merely engaging with a black person to being directly charged with racism. I inevitably encounter it in the context of presenting my work, but anytime the topic of race surfaces, credentialing can be anticipated. Because I am white, the topic of race has to come up before I see credentialing, but black colleagues have shared that their mere presence will trigger it. For example, when I'm on a plane and chatting with my seatmate, as soon as my line of work enters the conversation, I can expect credentialing from a white progressive, I am more likely to get anger and even mild ranting from white people who would not identify as progressive. Familiar forms of credentialing include claims such as, I was taught to see everyone the same. I don't see color. I work in a very diverse environment. My best friend, our partner, is black. I speak several languages. I have traveled extensively. I'm a minority myself. My parents taught me X. I was in the Peace Corps. I grew up in an activist community. I was the only white person in my school. I was on a mission in Africa. I adopted children of color. My parents were foreign ambassadors, and so on. Credentialing is important to examine because it reveals the underlying framework of racial meaning. While credentialing is intended to establish that we are not racist it simultaneously conveys its opposite what we think would indicate that we were racist
0: what are those what of those examples did you recognize it feels weird for me to ask you that (laughs) but uh
1: you know i i guess probably she probably uh you know she goes on to mention about you know credentialing as far as proximity uh and i've always loved that one i mean this is the um the trope that I've heard since I was, you know, was a little boy in Louisville. I'm at race. My white friends tell me I'm not uh, tell this. I'm not racist because my best friend Carl is black, and I, you know, and I just wonder. You know, I've always had this sort of fantasy about going to a party and get all my white friends together, and they're talking about race and I say, yeah, I'm not racist because my best friend, and then I show up and say, hey. I'm here. He Oh, is that your friend Carl? Is that your friend Carl? And I say, Hey, yes. And you're all racist. I don't know, I don't, I don't know any of you. you know, no, I'm only kidding. I'm only. But I, I think this idea of, of that proximity means anything, I think it's just really absurd. I, I just sort of, um, you know, I, mean, I would never say, you know, I don't dislike white people. My boss is white. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or I don't. Uh, I don't dislike white people. I don't hate white people. Whatever. My my sons go to all white schools. I mm-hmm. go to an all white church. Hell, I grew up with a white Jesus. Now that sounds ridiculous, right? Whatever never say that. That doesn't prove anything. So I this this notion that proximity and part of the credentialing means anything is just really if people thought that through, that that's actually offensive. You know, at um, you know. Y- and that's, I, I w- and again, that's you know, the
0: challenge of, of Robin, is because when you hear Robin articulated in that way, it is offensive. It's embarrassing. It's, <laughs> I, you know, I don't see color
1: my parents taught me x oh my god just, i've it, heard that's oh, I've, I've had friends loved ones that Carl. when i see you you know i don't see color i don't see you just a person to me i'm like oh really well that, I funny i see myself as a black person so i guess you don't see me no no you know that and somehow that discussion and people uh, people mean and it's just it's a language is an empowerment empowerment and poverty of language People yeah. mean to be loving and, and helpful, and I get all that, but when people say that to me, I think it's sort of um, what it communicates to me is there is more concern for a perception than reality. You yes. Know, and it's because and uh, I've, I've heard loved ones in the church say, oh, my God, I just, you know what? I, just, I don't see I don't know race as if it's a bad thing. Right? well I think the, it, it the, races, the statement uh, uh, you're negative oh, you, Carl don't bring this racist so when you say that you bring in people have said they've brought in this negative image of like oh my god Black. I don't see black like black is like a like a like an evil thing, you know, that's what people are saying to me. I don't I don't see you. I don't see who you are. I don't see your blackness. I don't see your race or whatever. I know race is a social construct, but it has real, real life impact in, in the real world. So when people say that they don't they don't see race with me, they don't see me because they if they saw me as a black person, that means I'm bad. That's what it communicates to the me. The thing that
0: jumps out at me in any of those statements is that I have a black friend. I don't see color. I don't identify as a progressive, my parents. And the center of the justification is always the individual, the white right. person. And it's, it's, it's because we've trained ourselves explicitly and, and implicitly to do that. Because we've taken one clip from Martin Luther King's speech at one moment in time and extrapolated that to be the gold standard for how we deal (laughs) with racial issues. That is, judging people individually on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And for so many people, uh, sorry, for so many white people, discussing race is so uncomfortable and it's so guilt-inducing or whatever, that. The out of saying, I don't see color is our way of not having to release the pressure valve of the hurt and the pain and the struggle and the daily indignities that people of color experience when they're in predominantly white spaces. Right. Well, you know, and again it's
1: that's the norm. You know, I mean I'm in a lot of predominantly white spaces. And and I've said that to people, and people say, "Well, Carl, yes, that's your choice. You can have your your children go to, to you know to schools that are predominantly black, but you choose to be." And and when it's reduced to that kind of argument, then it all is lost. But I will say, with 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 the with the, uh, the I Have a Dream, the content, of the character, and the whole thing, what's hidden behind that? What's um, what's implicit is the data on every reasonable kind of data point. People of color, you know, life expectancy you know, health concerns, uh, uh, income, you know, they all rank probably below uh, white people. So when you say this idea, it's not not about the race, it doesn't do with the race, it's about the concept of the character, so you're saying that your character is such that it will cause you to have all these health disparities, this, this these income discrepancies, and that's what is being communicated by this, it's only, if I look at the person, the character, whatever. and that's why I think people don't really think through uh, racial literacy, and which is good. Cause I think right now we we we're gaining some racial literacy because people. I just I feel, you know, and I'm I'm learning as a black person. I'm you know I'm I have the story. whatever, I am learning racial literacy to apply to myself because again, it's uh, it's these things are very nuances As we said earlier. Progressive considered all these things. There are very nuanced people. People feel differently at different points of time. You know, I am totally aware of how I am perceived historically uh, by by people of color. And particularly people who are white. So now, does that kind of a perception uh, translate into into behavior and aspirations? I don't think so. But then, it, but it could. You know, it mm-hmm. could. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm always afraid. So I'm not afraid, but I'm aware of of white solidarity sometimes uh, affecting me and my family. Uh, you know, at a disadvantage. I mean, I just, um, you know, if. And I and I know my black boys, my black sons, you know, out on the street, they're perceived older, stronger, fat. they you know, you know, so those all those things uh, work in concert to produce a narrative, and that narrative has psychological consequences as well. And it um, and I cannot say that I am not I am not unaffected by those things. So those things could determine for me some outcomes, and you know, it, I'm I'm sure they they probably could, and they, and probably have. I know historically, you know, like I said last week. Ken uh, Ken Kendi says uh, internalized pathologies for people of color is the real black on black crime Mm. and I know for me you know some things I say well I'm not very good at that I can't do do that I can't do that I can't do that I've taken cues from culture perceptions of me and my own uh, desire to sort of push myself and I'm thinking sometimes why push myself for what for what I'm thinking and I follow why do I say that like I stutter I talk fast I'm like why do I you know I could, but I don't when I act for the most part I say why is that? Well because I think hey you know sometimes maybe I think Carl cool Carl is just stuttering inarticulate because that's how I perceive people see me you know I don't know maybe that's my own internalized pathology maybe so, maybe not but I cannot say that I'm not I am unaffected by my perceptions of his, my, of, the, of, the, of the history that has been allowed among people of color. Of course, you know. again people say that's all in your head Carl I don't you know I get all that people yeah Carl you can, rah rah you can do it it's okay Charlie Brown I've heard you know whenever I say that among my, my white friends they say oh no Carl no don't say that about yourself no come on you can do it you can do it Charlie Brown you know I don't, and I'm like <laughs> shove it I don't you know take, take this football and shove it I don't want to hear it right now just listen to me and it's a good example
0: yeah just and listen right just listen it's hard it's it, hard though it's, it's hard. funny it's hard. because I, because I've known you so long and we've had these conversations I don't I don't think that, but I think five years ago, I'd have been like, no, Carl, you're great. You know, th- the same thing. <laughs> uh, you rah, know, rah, rah, <laughs> rah, rah, rah,
1: you can do it, man. You,
0: <laughs> you know, one thing that you mentioned, uh, the perception of your boys and uh, black boys and black girls as it, 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 it just in general, and I've been a children and student minister for over 20 years. If there was, I think, I think this is true it feels like a hyperbolic statement, but I feel like making it on, uh, right now. If I could change one racial attitude amongst white people, if I could reach in and have a magic switch, mm. it would be that a seven-year-old black boy, regardless of how tall he is, how strong he is, how athletic he is, how smart he is, is still only seven years old if a 12 year old black girl, no matter how developed she is, athletic she is, um, um, smart she is, is still only 12 years old. And in our schools, on our sports teams, in our families, if we could come to the idea that being seven, regardless of what your body looks like on the outside, or the words that come out of your mouth, or the look or side eye that you get, you're seven years old. You're 11 years old. You're 15 years old. This is the. Tr- this is the. I mean, now we're. This is the problem with Trayvon Martin and that whole situation. The number one thing that they had to do to to to. Is to, is to portray him not as a 16 year old boy.
1: Yeah. Well, same with Emmett Till. Emmett Till, you know. Uh, 14. You know, yeah. uh, you know he uh, you know, a, a supposedly whispered whispered at the sister, you know, at the, at the white woman, and she told her brother, which she later recanted, by the way, so he was killed for nothing. She's still alive. And, uh, no, she passed away. She passed away. Oh, she passed uh, away, she, she passed away, yeah. So she, passed, she passed away. And she passed on her deathbed. She said, no, I, you know, he never did. He never wished to do it. But, you know, so the people, he was viewed as a man. You know, he was. A, you know, he was. And again, I think it's a. You know, I'm not. I don't think I'm asking for white people to sort of um, to be better than their history, uh, per se. I mean, I actually, I, I think we all need, need need to learn from our history, but you know, but my whole thing is for people. You know, people of color, for people who are white, to disrupt the patterns. I don't. I don't understand. And I'm being honest. What is so difficult with disruption? I think you know. Philosophically, to disrupt anything. If I'm shooting free throws with my left hand and they're not going in, I need to disrupt that and shoot with my right hand. I don't know why. Culturally, when you say disrupt, people, are like, oh my god, disrupt! I, I, I got you're walking on eggs. What, what do you mean disrupt? I got all this liberal stuff, all this critical race theory, and so disruption is viewed, I guess, in a, in a quote unquote democracy as an a treasonary act or an authoritative authoritative act. I never understood that. Mm-hmm. To do, you know if, if I if my wife and I are, are arguing about something and I want to disrupt it to make get, get peace I want to do it but yeah. I don't know somehow. it could be changing this, your tone it, it could be rephrasing I, your I, idea yeah, and absolutely. I think one of the absolutely. things
0: I think one of the things here here's a good challenge for any uh, white people who are listening to this you know white people tend have a tendency to tell a story about like like say someone in the grocery store right oh uh, you know the woman at the checkout was really you know, grumpy uh, you know, with me. Or this black girl at the w- at the checkout was really grumpy with me. Oftentimes, when it comes to a negative interaction, white people tend to put color. It could be Latino, it could be yeah. Asian, it could be whatever, because normal is when we just say a person, like this person did this. And so there there's a twofold disruption that I would like to challenge. Number one is if if you're telling a story about someone their color doesn't matter number one and so you can leave that out of the story and yet at the same time challenge yourself to see color to see color so don't say i don't see color these are two seemingly competitive ideas but they're actually not, because one is about raising your vision and your awareness to the circumstances surrounding you. And the other one is removing a kind of value judgment of an interaction with color as being one of the aspects of that interaction.
1: Well, so, I guess in order to sort of uh, to even attempt that, one has to recognize the reality that one feels, I think people see those things, and I think they spend a lifetime trying not to because it's, it doesn't seem as, but I think people do, they are we're totally aware of color, totally, totally aware of race, you know, and, and they feel it's, through, through lack of education or whatever, that it's bad, so therefore I'm going to pretend I don't see it, so that, you know, but I think people people are people are well aware of, and, and I think one of my disruptions, I would love for, for white people to answer for the norm as white people do. You know, I would like if you know if I say, "Hey, Jason, so tell me, just so, so you, white guy, now why do white people do this when they go to the, st-, you know, now and mm-hmm. that sounds like, oh my God." But if you said, "Carl, what's the black perspective?" and I would say, "You know what? What I would do? No, I would, oh well, here, here, here you go, because I know sometimes it's now, I'll be honest with you, when I've been in situations that Carl, could we want we ask you to come in because we want to get want to want to hear some of them from you know from the black perspective." When I, I've taken it, oh well for sure thing, buddy, and, I, and I'll be, I'll play my magic Negro. Sure thing, where well, here is the black perspective, but I would never say that to a white person. Yeah, I'm not conditioned to I would never say, hey, because I don't say, hey, Jason, so now you, you're a white guy, so what's up with Donald Trump, man? Why is that? What's yes. with him? I would yes. never say that, but you know, that's a- Well, that,
0: that leads perfectly into our next clip where Robin DiAngelo talks about how uncomfortable it is, particularly for white progressives, to have um, affinity groups. Well, she challenges that notion, and you can see really quickly how uncomfortable white people can get when you start suggesting, let's meet together and then divide off into affinity groups. Here's what she says.
2: There is a common exercise in anti-racist work in which participants meet in affinity groups, also known as caucusing, based on their shared racial identity white people meet together, black people meet together, Asian heritage people meet together, multiracial people meet together, and so on. These groups provide an opportunity to address issues that are specific to that group, and participants can do so without the pressure of being heard by members of other groups. For example, white people can talk about dynamics such as internalized superiority, implicit bias, guilt, confusion, resentment, and so on without causing hurt to racialized people. And racialized people can talk about very sensitive issues and express emotions related to their marginalization without risking retaliation from white people in the room. While the ultimate goal of anti-racist work is to bridge racial divides, many white people do not have the skills to engage in cross-racial work without causing further harm. Using affinity groups, strong white facilitators can work with white people to identify and address these behaviors before coming back together in mixed-race conversations so that mixed-race dialogues might be more constructive and less harmful. They are simply one tool among many others. I have been leading white affinity groups for years, and there is a consistent pattern that emerges as soon as it is announced that we will be separating by racial group for a brief period of time, typically 60 to 90 minutes. White people panic.
1: So I wonder, Jason, why do, why do you all panic? <laughs> you all don't. believe
2: because-
0: I don't know, I, I, but it feels very unsettling. I think it has to do with this notion, again, going back to, that what racism looks like, and now we're going to get in a little deeper, is, is spaces explicitly designed to be explicitly articulated as being white. When we walk around in neighborhoods that are predominantly white, when we're at a restaurant that is predominantly white, when we're in a church that is predominantly white, as long as nobody says, this is a white church, this is a white restaurant, this is a white city, then we're okay with it. But then when we meet in these groups and we say, okay, we are going to have a white only space it's just that sentence there right there that causes just absolute freak out now we could have even a meeting to talk about racism and only white people will show up and we'll talk about it but the moment said moment someone would say well as a white group talking about racism boy Oh, it makes me uncomfortable just even
1: saying that. <laughs> well, well, well out loud. let's equal time. Let's be let's be historically fair and historically honest. When some, I'm assuming, and I'm, I'm being I'm being grossly, I think we, we're, we we both are. We're being grossly general, and we don't mean That's right. to offend anybody so, so you So, to take it with a grain of salt. But I would assume that when white people say white spaces and white, you know, group, we but by naming the whiteness, it culturally sounds like white nationalism. That's right. Right. So it Absolutely. sounds like, OK, it sounds like, oh, well, well, white, white period, white, whites only white citizens council historically in, in the Jim Crow area. you know, with the, uh, the uh, government had his white citizens council, white, uh, white economic council. So so now people say, well, that's like you say affinity groups. They're the same thing. No, they're not. But they sound like it historically with historical ears. So I I can, I do understand some of the apprehension because it looks like, you know, people have white affinity. I'm actually for them. I think they're, they're helpful. Uh, I think that they, they're really they're naming. But for some, it sounds like, wow, man, we've 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 jumped back 50 years. We're like segregating, you know, and we're, we're part of this white council, you know, white yeah. citizens council. And people hear that. And, but see, here's the thing. But my, my challenge to people who feel that way is this. Do the work. Do the stuff. That's not what white people are gathering. But, but people usually check out by that time. Yeah, the, you know, and it's, and I know, you know, we know some famous liberals who said, "Oh my God, we're turning into a secret." We're segregating all. Bill Maher says that for God's sake, and I just, yeah. I just, I struggle with that. I'm like, "Oh come on, you seriously?" And without even knowing the history, but, um,
0: and I think but, it's but, one of the things. You know how people uh, in in some certain certain circles been using the term like the woke mob, and <laughs> all this other kind of things. And and I think in one way, you know, Robin D'Angelo is kind of saying actually the wokeism amongst white progressives is not as woke as you think it is because there are are these spaces in which you continue to want assert a kind of dominance and privilege including racialized spaces where you're talking about racism because if the black people go away how will they not how will I be able to be taught by them about racism and And
1: that's a whole nother historical pathology about kind of you know, you have the whole, you know, Mammy syndrome and go, going on in the South and and, and caretakers and everything else about, uh, and that's that's a whole. Anyway, I mean, well, well, no. To that
0: end, Robin D'Angelo quotes uh, a journalist from London, which I think it just really highlights uh, this. This is a quote I think white people really need to hear, and I hope it expands our capacity for empathy. And why it is important in the right, in the at the right time, and and uh, facilitated by the right people to have these white affinity spaces. It's not white affinity. It, it's white anti-racism spaces. And uh, the, this is uh, the quote she pulls.
2: The underlying message to BIPOC people is that we understand racism better than they do, and they are overreacting. Of course, without ongoing study, accountability, and practice, and even then, white people actually do not know more about the reality of racism than BIPOC people. This is a significant reason why many BIPOC people often avoid talking to white people about racism. As British journalist Rennie Edo-Lodge, the author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, says... I just can't engage with the bewilderment and defensiveness as they try to grapple with the fact that not everyone experiences the world in the way that they do. They have never had to think about, in power terms, what it means to be white. So any they are vaguely reminded of this fact, they interpret it as an affront. Their eyes glaze over in boredom or widen in indignation. Their throats open up as they try to interrupt itching to talk over you but not really listen because they need to let you know that you've got it wrong. I cannot continue to emotionally exhaust myself trying to get this message across while also towing a very precarious line that tries not to implicate any one white person in their role in perpetuating structural racism lest they character assassinate me. So I'm no longer talking to white people about race.
1: Wow, uh, that's um, you know. Obviously, I think that's I under that's equal time. I'd be had to be honest. I do understand the frustration, uh, and I can I be honest with you. I'm please, I'm, yeah. I'm to I'm I'm yeah. keep it real. I, I worry about you sometimes, Jason. I worry about you. You know, you you, you jumped head on into this, this this discussion. You jumped head on into these uh, into racial literacy circles and, and and expanding. I'm a I'm worried for your white burnout. I'm I'm worried for for when you you say, you know something. I'm here, I'm here, but I'm feeling it. And when you get enforcement that is negative, reinforcement that is negative from from people of color, you may say, oh, you know, I've tried. I try to do that, and I'm out of here. Or or you may say, there's nothing I can do. I'm out of here. Or you can say, or you may say this. You know something? I I looked at both sides, and my privilege is worth maintaining and, and and worth codifying. I'm going to do that. So I am I, I am concerned. I, I, I got to be honest with you. You know, sort of uh, like for me, my exhaustion, here's the thing. And this sounds kind of like, yeah, here this the right way. I'm not doing a, a Charlie Brown pity party. But my exhaustion has historically been codified as normative. Mm-hmm. So I have to navigate some of those spaces. So therefore, I, you know, do that with, with a, I navigate racialized spaces just by showing up. So I'm, I'm a little more used to the exhaustion. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So I'm like, ah, oh, I mean, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, when I say, when I get into a situation where there's some racial tension, I'm thinking, okay, this is, you know what that's called for me? That's called Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, right? Well. Saturday and Sunday. So that's, that's not called a special day for me. Prior to reading this,
0: (laughs) prior to reading this book or listening to Robin, my instinct would have been like, don't worry about me. I'm okay. You know, it's, you're the one who has to deal with this all the time. The Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But she forces me to be honest with myself and carl your worry and concern is valid (laughs) because i do have an exit i can walk out at any time i can easily surround myself with spaces and people for whom they would never bring this up and being cognizant of that and being The only thing that I think really helps me or at least I hope is a hedge is that as a Christian, as a Christ follower, I have really embraced the idea that it's not my righteousness and my good works that save me, but rather it's continuing to remain humble and fully embrace the idea that I cannot do anything good or worthwhile on my own that i'm too flawed and failed as a as a human being to think that i've got it all or, and and so I don't know I, I don't know if that means anything I don't know how that what well, what well, I,
1: I, I have to I have to applaud you man that's that's very that's very candid and that's very hard to say and I really applaud your honesty and you know right now I've known you for over 20 years but but racially I could say I could jump up and down what do you mm-hmm. what i mean yeah you can you can you can walk out of here but I can't blah blah, 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 blah. and that's why sometimes people don't want to be that candid because they feel as though they may get get raked across the coast for yeah in comparison to their bl- black brother sister a person of color. But I but I again I I actually that is um, part of the discussion. And again, your like uh, this is one thing I love Keek says it's um you know our victories are wound up in each other. Our social victories, our social humanity and our social uh, uh, peace and and, and expansion and, and empathy. They're they're symbiotic. I can't have mine without you having yours. And so, therefore, I should want you to. You know, why would I want to take your vulnerability and pee on it? Why would you, yeah. as a white person, want to take my vulnerability or, or whatever and say, okay, well, you know, you, you don't feel that way. There, there's nothing. Well, what, well, what about this person? You know. So I think it, once we conclude that you know something that are kind of our peace, our levels of peace, our levels of, of 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 joy, they are symbiotic. They are wound up in each other. I think we 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 will become a little more sympathetic. And a little more vulnerable, and a little more uh, ex- exhibit a little more humility when having this, this discussion, and recognizing that I remember I, I done a done a, a, a reflection at this Sunday service a little while ago, and one thing I was trying to communicate was how to find joy and you know when, when things are challenging, and the, and I, the, the 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 answer is, I have no idea, so if I have no idea, you have no idea, and guess what, we both don't have any idea together. That is, I think, is a place of equity.
0: All right, Carl, we've come to the time where we uh, ring the bell and we uh, share what we've been reading, listening to, thinking about this week. And it might be of interest to other people out there. So what have you got?
1: Well, you go first. Ooh, Ooh. that went first last time, yeah. (laughs) Hey, man, do you want to be equitable? Yes, yes. we are the world, come on, race, come on. You go first, man. You go first, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had never watched The Sopranos before, the series The Sopranos. Never watched it, even when it it came out. Now, I had watched back in 2005 the season finale because my brother-in-law and sister were really into it, so I watched that finale. Of course, I had no story behind it i just watched it so i knew what happened in the finale so i've watched the entire series and i watched the finale and i was so disappointed so (laughs) here we are 15 years later or however long later and it still ended even though i knew it was coming with just that black screen and i was like that sucked man uh so anyway it's just funny how you can know something is coming but if you've invested all this time in watching the whole series and it comes up you still feel indignant about it Yeah. Uh, so anyway that's it's not really anything deep but that's
1: Well that, no I it's, it's, a, you know, it's a, I'm I'm to I wanted to see the new movie as well the prequel uh it was, I, I'm it's I'm,
0: terrible a fan of the
1: series. yeah i've been hearing but i heard Leslie Odom was really good in it he's a, he's a
0: good he guy. is he is good in it um but it just is so. It tries to be too many things, and I don't and like that. I don't yeah, like the yeah. Instagram filter they put on it. They uh, they've turned up the blues and the grays and yeah. made it very muted. I, I don't think that. I don't like that so anyway well,
1: yeah, I, I find that those prequels that there are challenging because it's very rare to do a good prequel or a sequel because I just because Hollywood' runs out of ideas but but I, I think um I had to be two couple things I mean I think you know occasionally I I do acting work when I have time you know around my my, my job as a minister but I'd done this um, Macy's uh, online virtual Santa Claus thing and it was so it was it was great it was fun you know I had to sign an NDA but but I was like that's the hardest the lines oh. I I've done Othello, and I had to do Santa Claus, and I'm like, I didn't know what I was... (laughs) The the L Safe Christmas was hard for me. Uh. I was like, man, it was hard. But that that was... So anyway, I have more respect for people. What is that virtual... What is that? What what they're doing now because of Macy's, you know, they have the... Because of COVID. Now they're having... um, a virtual uh, Santa Land experience, so you can go on from your computer. You can go on meet Santa, have the story there, have me as a black Santa, oh whatever, do no it. And, and and say they take, you can take a picture and look at it. The, and there's a whole storyline. And the producer, the director, was like he was treating this like it was The Godfather. He was like Carl. Now he's like now the elves, the magic elves over here, and now give me your pat. I'm like. I was I was kind of thinking, are, are you kidding me, man? But they, but it was great. It was they are wonderful and professional. So I, that was pretty funny. But also one thing, I saw a movie. Uh, this me, my friend, uh, my friend, my son Joshua, <laughs> Freudian slipped <Freudian> slip there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my sixty year old son. We'll, we'll we, talk about we'll talk about parenting next week and be yeah, like,
0: well, hey man, I'm not like a, the other dads. Yeah, I'm a I'm cool, cool dad. Man.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah a, <laughs> but we saw a movie called Detain, and uh, and you know, and I love. I love uh, uh, French cinema. I'm a I'm a big fan. I love cutting edge theater and theater and and movies as well. And I think and uh, you know this was the one won the, the con at, at con it was the, the, and the woman who's a, the 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 lead will be a star and a, uh, I forgot her name but but I was like it was too far for me. Wow! And it was like whoa! If this is where <laughs> cutting edge theater is going. Scotty, be me out of here. And I never yeah. thought I became. I became my grandmother, you know. Now, and, this and is this a movie or theater? It's, like a, it's a, a movie. It's a movie. It's a movie. movie. It's the, movie. The, it's, okay, it's, okay. it's called Tatane. It's uh, and it's you know, and I, and I, you know, and but it's um, it's really, and I was like, even my son, Joshua, my Joshua is a, he's a sophisticated. He loves film. He's a, he's, I think he's a great actor. He wants to direct as well. And but he was like, whoa, Dad, I think you've pushed me too far. <laughs> he told me that. So and, I'm thinking, and were okay, you like,
0: do not tell your mom we went
1: to I the That's movie. exactly what I said. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I said, hey, Joshua, let's just tell, let's just tell mama, you know, they was kind of, you know, that we didn't like it. That's all we got to say. <laughs> so, so, and I, I guess it worked. I guess our lying helped because she hadn't got on me about it yet. So whatever.
0: <laughs> well, and what's great about is that this podcast is already way too long. That There's no yeah. way our wives are going to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I told my wife, like, I'm doing a podcast. She would, what? Podcast. Why? What for? Other
0: yeah, other. I know. Hey, well, thank you everyone for coming along with us on this journey. And uh, we'll be back next week. Remember, if you liked the podcast, uh, it'd be great if you subscribed. Anyway, thank you so much for listening.
1: Ring a ding ding.